Hello, and welcome to another Star Trek The Original Series podcast. Today's episode, Operation Annihilate. And I, I said that with uh, extra enthusiasm because there's an exclamation point on this title, the only one that has one. Hmm. And of course, as usual, we have Eric. Hello. And Rob. Hello. So, this is the end of the first season. So, this episode is quite a bit different, obviously, from the last two we we watched, which had lots of, you know, alternate universe and time travel and stuff like that in it. This is a, a pretty straight-ahead Alien Invaders-type movie, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. It's not exactly original, but it's a lot of fun. It has actually some some good character stuff in it, especially Spock gets, gets to really, you know, do some good stuff here. And um, I, I think is is really well-paced. It has has a has has some interesting science fiction monster concepts, and uh, I think we'll have uh, have a good chat on this one. Um, and of course, we always, at least Rob and I, always refer to this as the flying pancakes episode, due to the the way the little cell organisms flying around on wires look like. Although they kind of look also like bloody omelets or something like that too. Yeah, they, they look more like omelets, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Some ketchup. So, Eric, I don't know if you want to give us your quick overview of. Uh, your uh, opinion on this one. I'll let you start out. Okay, I'll start by saying uh, I thought Leonard Nimoy in particular did a really good job in this episode. His portrayal of uh, <clears throat> Spock being in agony, uh, but controlling it barely, usually, I thought was very convincing. I thought he did a really nice job with that. I guess in terms of uh, it being a well-established, maybe overused science fiction theme. I, I don't know if you can call that a virtue or not. I mean, but it was a genuine science fiction episode. The problem I have with it is that some of the the gaffes in the science are just so blatant that it's, it's really hard to get past them. But um, I guess that's at least partly made up for by the fact that the character interaction is really good, too. And... Uh, you know, that that can make it up for it to some degree. But I, I do have some genuine beefs that I'll I'll voice later. Okay, Rob, uh, what's your quick and quick and dirty one? Uh, I agree with you that <clears throat> the pacing is great. The way that the mystery unfolds um, is fantastic. I, I mean, it just, the beginning of when we, when we see the ship flying into the sun because they're trying to get rid of the... Creatures is great, um, very suspenseful, and it's all built up very well, very effectively. Um, the, pan- the pancakes, um, <laughs> maybe a little bit of a letdown. I-, I don't remember it being a letdown when I was a kid. I thought they were creepy enough, but it's sometimes the case that a special effect is never as good as um, what you can do with suspense. But um, I-, I think it's a great... I- when I was watching it, the um, problems with the the creatures and how they operate and how they how they're spread didn't really bother me. I have to say, um, I think because of the the good pacing and storytelling that John that you were talking about, um, it keeps us, you know, on our toes the whole time. So we don't really have much time to think about um, how it might be implausible. And then after afterwards, as I was thinking about it, I began to think about things that didn't seem to make sense, like how these creatures can um, communicate with another one with one another across incredibly huge distances of space and 
And um, I don't know if we want to get into this right now, but I think there's it definitely leaves a lot unanswered about that aspect of it. Well, you know, um, Rob, it wasn't uh, so much the the supposed way the the creatures were supposed to operate or communicate, although I hadn't really thought about that. It it, it wasn't uh, that that bothered me. What bothered me was, and I'll, I'll get a little bit more into this, the fact that they purported, or, or the method of destroying them was with ultraviolet radiation. And I don't know who they consulted, if anyone, about the science regarding UV radiation, but they pretty much got it 110% wrong. <laughs> and, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a scientist, and I'm not an expert in the electromagnetic spectrum, but i got to tell you, it doesn't take somebody who's real knowledgeable to know these things. Um, so... So what but, did they get wrong? So just we should, we may as well get into it now, right? Yep, I think okay, we're that, we're we're good to go there, and we can talk about that piddly you know story stuff and character stuff later. <laughs> okay, well, and and if I if I go on too long, just just tell me to shut up. But I can always cut you out too; it's no problem. <laughs> oh great, oh, that's comforting. Um, no, uh, well, to begin with, they uh, at the very beginning they have the ship flying toward the Denovan sun, and he gets real close and finally says, oh, I'm free, and then burns up. All right, spacecraft are shielded, and I mean, they've even specified this in, in Star Trek in various, in various times. Spacecraft are shielded against radiation. So that, uh, just the, net, the shielding on the ship would have blocked the ultraviolet. More than that, um, ultraviolet radiation can't penetrate things like glass, metal, stone, concrete, on and on. It, it's blocked by all of those things. So, um, he would have had to have been directly, I mean, exposed to the, the radiation sans spacecraft in order for it, it to work on him at all. And obviously that would have been ridiculous because, well, you know, he couldn't have survived without the protection of the spacecraft. But to take it a, just a step further, even if you're supposing that it's the ultraviolet radiation that destroys these creatures, McCoy establishes that when the creature attacks and injects this nerve tissue that grows and entwines around the nervous system of the, uh, the host, uh, given that, the ultraviolet would have to penetrate pretty deeply in order to kill the creature or this whatever it is that, you know, the, this parasitic... In infection that it, it leaves in the host I, I mean you would have to uh, it would have to penetrate quite far in order to uh, to kill it and well the UV doesn't well in order to do that it would certainly kill the host I mean a high enough dose of UV to penetrate you know like an inch or more into the body would fry a human being to a crisp so I mean that that alone is enough to make it, I mean, hard to get past. But uh, when when you get down on the the surface of the planet, and um, well, as, as the story progresses, I, I'll skip some of this. But they they ultimately uh, decide that they are going to um, put these uh, UV radiation satellites in orbit at a high enough intensity to penetrate inside buildings. 
that's utterly ridiculous. You, I, I don't know, there may be an intensity of UV uh, potent enough to burn through metal, glass, concrete, but I don't know what it would be. Um, still, that, that doesn't ring true because uh, it's just a physical property that glass, for instance, uh, blocks UV. You, ultraviolet radiation cannot penetrate glass, um, much less any kind of metal or stone or concrete or wood, what have you. So the, there is no way that you know, putting these UV satellites in orbit around the planet would have solved the problem. And again, you come back to the, what I was saying earlier, that even in the cases where uh, you, you could kill, or where it would affect the humans on the surface who were infected, it would have to be of such high intensity that the ultraviolet would, I mean, high enough intensity to penetrate into their bodies to kill all this, every, every, all of the, well, whatever it was that had entwined itself around their nervous system. Uh, I mean, that intensity I, I, of yeah. UV would kill them. I mean, that all makes sense to me. I, I really don't remember from high school science, but is ultraviolet radiation even light at all? I mean, is it? Well, it's part it of the, it's part of the electromagnetic spectrum, and it's, it's part of, uh, the entire spectrum of, well, it's not visible, but it's uh, the sunlight that reaches Earth. It, it, UV makes up part of the, uh, the light that comes from the sun and reaches Earth. So you would call it light, one form of light. I mean, that, that seems to be like a basic error. If it's like, I know in, infrared is heat, right? Infrared. Well, right, but it's also a component of light. I guess, yes, you could call it, it's one component of uh, of light, yes, or at least it's a it's a component of sunlight. Like sunlight is made up of various uh, wavelengths of uh, that we can see. You know, red light, blue light, all the different colors plus um, plus UV. Well, UV A, B, and C, and um, infrared radiation and some other things too. Well, isn't infrared radiation just heat? Isn't that the heat from the sun? Or am I just completely off about that? No, no, it is. It's um, that's the way heat is transferred radiatively. So, so there's a small amount, a shred of scientific truth in there somewhere. Oh well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> they they are accurate that the light coming from the Denovan sun would undoubtedly contain UV. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's true. Yeah, exactly. But otherwise, it's 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 extremely far fetched. Right. The 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 whole premise that um, they could have used UV to wipe out the these alien these alien cells and uh, much less doing it the way they described is completely ridiculous they could not have well number one they could not have done it and number two even if they could have done it they couldn't have uh, accomplished it without killing the human hosts too well Eric I I'm with you on that one I've always thought that was a glaring weakness in this episode it, it's something yeah. I just have to ignore yeah and and that's the thing you know it's it's like many other episodes and, you know, a lot of other science fiction, both in movies, TV, and in books. You have to you have to suspend disbelief to a certain degree. The thing that bothered me about this one is it, it's so blatant. I mean, it, it just totally ignores some basic science that it's really, I don't know, it, it's harder in this one for me to just overlook it. So it, it's actually detracting to the point of being distracting for you on this one. I, I can usually um, I can shut off that 
voice in my head that's telling me wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> but um, it, I'm it, it's not one of my favorite episodes for that reason. Yeah, I understand that, and I I think that uh, you know I, I I can't really add anything to that. I think it's it's a great uh, breakdown of of why the science in this particular science fiction is is kind of bogus but right um yeah there, there are some you know good good things in it though and i the the part that i always roll my eyes though is the whole satellite penetrating buildings from orbit thing where somebody could be hiding within an enclosed building and still be be cleaned up so to speak right. yeah yeah that that seemed extremely um ludicrous yeah yeah. But uh, but hey, in exchange you get the scene where Spock storms the bridge and goes, "Must take the ship," <laughs> which is it's just one of my favorite scenes in the whole episode. It's great. Yeah, yeah I know yeah. we we made fun of that uh, moment before, but I, when I watched it, it didn't bother me. I mean, it didn't strike me as funny. It was even though it is strange. Must take the ship. A little bit inconsistent though with uh, with the men who attack the landing party on the surface. Is there? Remember there. They're not in control of their bodies, but they are able to say, "Go back. We don't want to hurt you." Yeah, that's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't caught that. I mean, this is just nitpicking stuff, of course. But uh, then, whatever, uh, what, what were those giant wrenches they were carrying? Well, one of the, they have these um, little, they have these clubs. The the first group, and then later on, Spock gets attacked by a a, a dude with a wrench. With a giant that's wrench. right. I thought that looked that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, it does look ridiculous. Um, you know, it's one of those one of those episodes, though, that uh, again you get great Spock and McCoy character interaction, which is especially at, at the end when you know McCoy is just heartbroken that he needlessly blinded Spock. I I think that that's that that one really stands out for yeah, me. Yeah, there there are some genuinely good pathos, although, and I don't want to rag on this episode too much, mm-hmm. but you know, what uh, when when they're getting ready to put Spock in that test chamber. McCoy says, I can rig up a pair of goggles for you. And Kirk and Spock both concur that, you know, there won't be any goggles on the surface, so, you know, I shouldn't have any here. Okay, first of all... Why not try? Matter of, <laughs> but, I mean, it doesn't matter a whit whether or not the people on the surface will have goggles, and it wouldn't have made a difference. His eyes being protected isn't going to make any difference with the effect on the, the creature, so... I had the problem with that, and you know, the thing that I actually had a bigger problem with, and this is character-wise, after that, when Spock reveals that he's blind, Kirk gets pissed at McCoy, and you know, that was just wrong, because McCoy, number one, he wanted to, you know, give Spock the goggles to protect his eyes, and he, McCoy was actually reluctant to do it in the first place. It was Kirk and Spock who insisted on it, and then Kirk has the nerve to be high and mighty about it and you know come down on McCoy for it. I mean, what an asshole. Well, no, the, mis- <laughs> no, the mistake that McCoy made uh, was not waiting for the results from the test on the creature. Right, and but that was at the behest of both Kirk and Spock. Yeah, they wanted to go ahead with it, I think. Yeah. That that always bothered me because you know that was just I mean McCoy for was creating fake enough unnecessarily and creating fake drama basically. Yeah, I think so. Where you find it hard to believe that the characters actually would have done that. Yeah. Yeah. See, that, that seemed like a natural reaction to me, that he might be angry, even if it was not justified. It seems like it would be a normal response. You know, you, you know, who's to blame for this? I think, you know, why didn't you do something different? Well, you uh, know, 
Rob, I, I, I don't disagree with that, but um, in other instances in the series when Kirk has snapped at McCoy or somebody else inappropriately or undeservedly, he's always apologized later, and um, it would have been much more in character if, you know, later he'd said, you know, hey, sorry about that, I wasn't your fault. Well, um, didn't he say that, though? Didn't he say it wasn't your fault? Yeah, he does say that, actually. Does he? Yeah, yeah. he does. Yeah, and later on over the intercom, he he says, Bones, it wasn't your fault. Oh, okay. All I, I right. think he does eventually come around and say that. So I I would okay, put it more, more of a, you know, Kirk just having a natural human reaction. Okay. Even though, even though you know, it really was he and Spock who wanted to do it. Yeah, he was still an asshole to do it, but I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's great. Um Let's since we we've had a trend of uh, or pattern of doing this lately. Why don't we talk about the um, overt, you know, social political tone of this episode, which I think would be should be pretty obvious. But uh, um, Rob, do you want to jump in on that one? Sure. Well, as you know, my theory of Star Trek is that it's it has two, generally two themes that come out in every episode. One is uh, well, not not that both themes come out, but that at least one or the other do. One is that is the Cold War is, you know, reflected in uh, the Federation being like the United States and these planets being like third world countries um, or um, certain manifestations, different manifestations of the communist menace uh, and creatures that or other phenomena that the Enterprise encounters. And the other theme is of the, how, do, how do we deal with the counterculture? How do we deal with the, the divisions in society in the late 60s? And, um, I mean, I think there is, I think that this falls into the, the first type of, you know, communist menace theme, you know, and, it, and that goes back to the 50s with uh, movies like The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And so it's definitely very much in that tradition. Um, I think these are fascinating. You know, if you get past some of the scientific problematic issues, I think these, it is a sort of a fascinating concept that these are individual cells of one organism that's spread out over space, that its only, its only purpose apparently is to expand, you know, it doesn't seem to have any other uh, goal, you know, but it's obviously intelligent enough to know how to co-opt its prey for that purpose. So it's like a, like a strange sort of, you know, cancer or something, it's, which is it's very creepy. Yeah, it's definitely got that red menace uh, aspect to it, doesn't it? Yeah, sort of, you know, analogous to uh, the vision of communism as being this um, sort of uh, thing that invades and makes everyone the same, you know. Yeah, I, I'm glad you brought up the uh, the '50s movie reference, like the the Pod Peoples t- type thing, right? Because that that that's obviously you know, a big inspiration here. That that's uh, that these 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 organisms are going to take over everybody and make them make them build ships and all that, like they say in the episode. I, I think also another interesting thing was that they chose to write in a Kirk's brother episode, you know, business in the episode. Yeah, that is, uh, that is interesting. Uh, he was introduced, uh, George Samuel Kirk, Kirk's older brother, was introduced in um, What Are Little Girls Made Of earlier in the season. That was one of the early episodes. And I think it was nice that they uh, brought that back in. I think it is kind of a shame, though, that um, they killed him off, though, because that would have been, um, I don't know, it would have been kind of interesting to uh, have been able to do a little bit more with that because uh, you could have revealed a little bit more of, uh, through him, they could have revealed more of Kirk's backstory and 
Um, seeing him interact with an older brother would have, I think, been very interesting uh, because obviously, you know, there would be significant history there and, you know, it could be a source of conflict. It could be a source of, um, well, a lot of interesting, uh, you know, a lot of interesting things, but uh, they chose to off him. So, oh, well. I was wondering, Eric, whether Kirk's nephew ever shows up in any of the other Star Trek literature. I know he doesn't show up in any of the episodes. I'm assuming that I, maybe there's an episode of, of uh, Deep Space Nine or something that I haven't seen, or, or Enterprise. No, um, he, he never shows up in any uh, televised uh, Trek that I know of. It seems to me that in uh, he, uh, he appears in uh, one or more of the uh, books, but there are so many of them, and it's been so long since I've read a lot of them that I, I don't remember specifically. Uh, um, but no, he doesn't uh, make another appearance, uh, although the uh, actor who played him, Craig Hundley, is also in the third season episode, um, and the children shall lead. He plays oh, Tommy Starnes. Right. Um, so, I mean, the actor shows up again. Interesting. I, I also uh, one of the things that occurred to me actually when we, I was watching this was that if this particular plot had been superimposed into a next gen episode, there would have been a, a great debate about whether they need to try and communicate with the creature, and you know do something before just off often destroying it. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because th that doesn't even come into play. I mean, this is potentially an intelligent form of life, even, even though it's killing everybody. You know, there's no question that they have to destroy it. Well, I think they, because they established early on, and that may be one reason for having Kirk's family be part of it, is they, they set it up as something that's too dangerous to mess around with, you know? And I think that... Oh, I agree, yeah. In a next, But I think in a next-gen episode, if you had something like this that was this dangerous, they probably wouldn't. I mean, they might. I, I mean, it's, it, you're definitely uh, indicating a difference in philosophy. But but I, I do think that they do, you know, as I mean, contrast it with the devil in the dark, right? Yeah, very true. Um, where that's, a, I guess that's a creature that has killed people. Um, but, but it's not... You know, the difference. Not entire civilizations, yeah. Right, and it's, it hasn't killed Kirk's some of Kirk's family, and it's not occupying people's bodies and making them do stuff. Right. So. Yeah, the, the threat is entirely different. But, you know, comparing it to Next Gen, uh, Next Gen premiered 20 years after uh, the original series did, and I remember reading in various places that, you know, um, Roddenberry's take on it, well, just about everything had changed as he'd gotten older and, you know, the whole having families on the ships and uh, more of a pacifistic approach to things um, was, I think the way he described it was that uh, he just matured or, you know, had got soft. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, he kind of grown out of the, yeah. the, his fire youth, I guess is the way to put it. But um, yeah, it's hard to say. I, it seems unlikely that Picard would have been quite as uh, adamant to, find a way to kill it immediately, kill them immediately, but... Um, or they would have had some sort, some kind of discussion written into the episode about it. Yeah, I think that's like... <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that I would like to mention, um, and Rob touched on this, the, uh, the Cold War paranoia theme uh, really comes through in this, and uh, I agree that they obviously drew from the 1956 version of 
invasion of the body snatchers, but and I mentioned this before, it even goes back further than that to uh, Robert Heinlein's 1951 novel, uh, The Puppet Masters. And I went back and I uh, read up a little bit on on that novel, and originally I was saying that it's a direct plagiarization of that novel, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna modify that a little bit. It's it's maybe not a direct plagiarization, but uh, the creatures are very close. I mean, in in Heinlein's novel, they refer to them as slugs, and they attach to well, they can attach to any part of the body, but they typically like to attach to the upper back by the neck, just like the the pancakes in um, Operation Annihilate. But they um, they weren't anywhere near as difficult to kill. You know, you could get them to detach using electric shock, and they uh, they ended up killing them with a, a virulent d- disease that um, was also that also could be fatal to the humans. But it was more quickly fatal to the creatures. So they eradicated them by killing them off, and then doing a kind of rapid treatment of the illness in the humans. But um, there wasn't uh, the giant space mind element in Heinlein's novel either. So I oh, suppose, interesting. yeah, it, uh, in Operation Annihilate, they, I, I guess they took more of a kind of a blending of the concepts from Puppet Masters and from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, but still, it, I mean, it wasn't it wasn't original at all. It wasn't uh, an original right. premise by any stretch of the imagination. Interesting. Hey, I got a question for you guys. You remember the scene where uh, Kirk's sister-in-law dies in sickbay uh-huh. after you know revealing some of the important information about the creatures and uh, has this really you know hysterical screaming you know scene and everything do you find that uh, just scenery chewing and over the top or was that really effective i th- i think it's effective i th- it's pretty chilly i mean it, i think it's necessary because you need to understand why these these pancakes are are really really dangerous um and i, I think it's a, an effective way of conveying that kind of viscerally apparently according to wikipedia which is authoritative <laughs> That scene or, or portions of it were uh, cut from syndication in some cases because it was too it was considered to be too violent for television for daytime television I guess yeah. Or yeah or too disturbing yeah so. yeah I read the same thing I, well I hadn't read that um, but I remember when I rewatched it that uh, her uh, death throes and her agony and all um, it did seem over the top to me. John, um, you know, it didn't really bother me too much. Part parts of it, I, I'm kind of on the fence on that one. I have to, I have to admit, it's uh, it, it it's very it's a very hysterical performance. But uh, within the con- context of the show's acting style, I, I I don't think it's overdone. So that that's my weasel answer <laughs> on that one. Any other exciting, insightful comments we all have on this one? I did notice uh, that there was a. Some indication, again, some reinforcement for the um, ongoing subplot that Nurse Chapel is in love with Spock. Koi is operating on him. You know, she uh, she gets kind of freaked out, and he has to uh, oh, yell yeah, at her Kirk. to get her to uh, 
do it or yeah, call another it. nurse. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That, that's a good scene, actually. Yeah, I thought so, too. That's so, right. We're talking about Spock's character. I think it's interesting that he's willing to, the lengths that he's willing to go to to go down to the planet's surface and putting attack crewmen in, in uh, the transporter room, uh, which... This doesn't work this time, I might point out. Yeah, that, that was one thing that yeah. I noticed. I thought that was great. You know, they couldn't, Spock couldn't just walk into the transporter room, knock out the tech, and leave. Because they had to put Scotty there. Yeah, Scotty stopped him. I thought that was, was was nice after those last two episodes where it's just a joke on how they get off the ship. And then, uh, freeze right there, or I'll put you to sleep for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I, got, I always get a chuckle out of that one. It's like, Scotty finally you know figured out what's going on and he isn't going to take any more of this shit <laughs> you know um talking last time in our uh podcast on city on the edge of forever about why when city on the edge of forever is such a great episode especially in comparison to operation annihilate why they chose to end with operation annihilate versus city on the edge of forever right. and the only thing that i can conclude is when you compare the end of city on the edge of forever although it's very poignant and dramatic and um, it, it, it has a bitterness to it that actually is, I, I really like. It's, it's, more, it's more believable and real. Uh, I suspect that the reason was that you know you can end on a positive note because you know Operation Annihilate you end, the creatures are destroyed, um, Spock is cured and you know everybody's happy, they have a nice joke, fade out. And I suspect that, you know, they wanted to end things on, or end the first season on a high note, so to speak, rather than the kind of bittersweet or just bitter ending of City on the Edge Forever. Yeah, I think you've got a point there. That's, uh, it's not a terrible way to end the, the season, actually. No, I guess not. I mean, the stakes are raised in this episode with Kirk's, like I said, Kirk's family dying and family members dying and Spock going blind, um... Those are big stakes for the audience, even though it's not as, you know, not as good an episode. Uh, it does to raise it in that way, but I, but I think that's an excellent point, Eric. That you want this, you want the series to end by reaffirming, you know, the optimism and the the relationship between Kirk and Spock and McCoy, uh, the way that this episode does. Yeah, that's that that's that is a good point. It's uh, it's well done, and I think that. Uh... It's also a matter of fact that you know Kirk has two tragic episodes in a row. Big, big love story, he loses it, and then his brother his brother is killed by aliens. Yeah. That's a giant bummer. Yeah, no shit. I wonder if it has anything to do with the fact that by this point, it was clear that Spock was an extremely popular character, and uh, they didn't want Spock to overshadow Kirk too much. They needed to give Kirk more to do. I, I have no idea how the timing worked with that and when these episodes were written or filmed. But well, um, I uh, I'm trying to remember if that particular element was ever addressed. I don't think it was. Of course, Spock's pop or the popularity of Spock I think had already started to grow at that time. Um, and but not to be too derogatory. I'm guessing, um, based on a number of things that I've read from different sources, that uh, Shatner's ego had a lot to do with it, too. He was very um, uh, forthright in uh, insisting on Kirk having 
certain share of screen time, getting, you know, certain lines, uh, like in Plato's Stepchildren. Uh, originally, uh, Spock was supposed to kiss Uhura, and uh, he insisted that it was Kirk instead of Spock. Of course he did. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, you may be right, Rob, um, but... I tend to think that uh, Shatner's ego probably played a pretty big role. Interesting. Speaking of William Shatner, I just I don't I might cut this out of the, the podcast, but I have finally gotten around to reading the William Shatner autobiography that Rob was so nice to give me for my birthday. Oh, cool. Um, signed by the author. Oh, cool. Did you and, actually meet uh, him, Rob? I did. I had a three sentence conversation with him. What did it consist of? He said, hi, Rob, it's really nice to meet you. And I said, it's really nice to meet you, too. And he said, thank you so much. And I said, <laughs> bye. I guess that was four sentences. Wow. We had to, I mean, we had to move quickly. Of course. They, they wouldn't allow people to linger and talk. So it wasn't, he wasn't being rude or anything. It was just, yeah. in fact, he, was, he, he talked to me more than he did most people, I think. As he should. So what was the of venue? Uh, it was at a Barnes & Noble. And they had, in New York? In New York, and they had a very, a friend of mine got us, seats in the front row so we were actually got to get we were among the first people getting our book signed but they had all these really strict rules like nobody could wear any wear any costumes nobody could <laughs> i think they they had yeah he, he would only sign his he would only sign the books in one way he wouldn't give you any special you know you know he wouldn't write any special messages or anything he would only sign this particular book etc etc i'm yeah. sure this is all all completely normal for celebrity book signings yeah. but and I, I've actually enjoyed reading it. It's fun. Um, it, it's definitely got this uh, ironic, uh, you know, tone of voice to it, and you know, it, it, it's been really interesting reading about his early, early acting experience. Definitely. Yeah, it's really definitely worth reading, Eric. And I would have gotten you a signed copy too, but I was only allowed to get two. So. Oh, oh no, that's fine. <laughs> I'll. Uh, but you would have I'll been, borrow John's been next time. In, I was just saying, I'll borrow John's the next time I'm in the city. Yeah, it, it's a very entertaining read. I gotta say, it's. Follow, I'm following that up with this book about uh, famous Hollywood flops, <laughs> <laughs> which which has also been really fun to read. I guess this will wrap it up for us this time. For any of you who listen, thanks for listening, and I'm going to sign off, and have a good night. Good night, all. Pass the syrup, and good night. <laughs>